welcome to Fear of Ideas, your guide to the coming dark ages and the decadence of contemporary thought. I'm Phil, your host, and with me as always from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, it's Gerard. Oh, hey. How you doing, Phil? You can't actually use last names yet. Oh no! This is the uh, this is the new way. We're only going to have first names in the future. I've decided. Um, it's it's going to be a sort of, and then we'll we'll begin using sort of the Icelandic son of Phil, son of Gerard names again. Well, it won't be son of. It'll be like a series of uh, identifiers for uh, sort of DNA tags. Um, yeah, so. or the the uh, sea cucumber. Yeah, like abyssal, you, in the abyssal trench. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, do you belong to the the clan of the blind crab, the clan of the uh, the fungi, the fungi clan? Yeah. yeah, that's true. We'll have new um, uh, new sort of like symbols and and uh, family crests that are sort of like etched <laughs> on the rocks of our once great civilization. <laughs> um, so uh, our our topic for today, I have to admit I, I I was confirmed in my head that I wanted to do it when I saw that uh, the teens uh, the teens are out there and there's there's a new music craze um, they have been buying up all of the available copies of uh, a new uh, hot new album uh, called macroeconomics um, <laughs> the uh, there's a textbook uh, recently written uh, by a few uh, macroeconomists, uh, Bill Mitchell, uh, Randy Ray, um, and, and someone else. And it sold out within like a few months of its publication. And, you know, it's a really, you know, curious thing, right? Why would a, right, why would a, a book of macroeconomics like sell out uh, really, really quickly? Um, and, you know, it's, it's the new edgy thing that the kids uh, are into. I kept imagining that uh, this scene in which like Gerard is like in his uh, parents' house, you know, and it's like, uh, you know, knocking on the door, um, you know, what are you reading in there, you know, and uh, has to like hide the fact that he's reading mon- modern monetary theory. Um, Gerard, why can't you, why can't you read nice economists like Larry Summers and, and uh, Thomas Pally, Paul Krugman, why can't you be like your sister? and? Read the nice, the nice, the uh, nice normal post-Keynesians. <laughs> um, Happy Pride Month, everyone. Yeah, the queer the queer economists are getting a little bit more play. Gerard, is uh, that a poster of Abba Lerner on your wall? <laughs> Get that down this instant. Not in my house. Um, so, yeah, so we're going to be talking about the sort of the craze that is modern monetary theory. Um, and... I guess I also want to do this um, in part. So there's this sort of question, like why why are these books selling out, right? What and this is like a I should emphasize this is not like a uh, a fun you know a fun narrative adventure through mac. This is like a macroeconomics textbook um, that's selling out. So you know why is it selling out? But the other thing I think the reason I wanted to to talk about modern monetary theory is I think it does represent this uh, attempt to disrupt this like fully operational regime uh, of austerity that uh, we've lived in I think our entire lives I had this memory of being in college um, and I was in this class on um, I think it was on uh, uh, fiscal policy and the they they had people these sort of deficit hawks you know from DC come in somewhat regularly to talk about how social security was going to be going bankrupt, you know, within our lifetimes. And there was this, and so the project of the class was like, you had to, you know, you had to gin up, find this way of ginning up support for like deficit reduction, right. And paying down the debt and like making social security solvent. And that was the project of the class. You had to like develop a campaign. And so I remember being in this group and we had to like create this commercial and our, the, the slogan was like die by 65 um and it's like well social security has become we, we might as well die by the age of 65 and the the commercial that we did was like all of these risky behaviors and somebody like smoked a pack of cigarettes at once and then jumped into the skulkle river um 
So, uh, but it was just this weird moment where this is just considered to be, if you were sophisticated, right, about politics, you, you thought hard about the deficit and you were like a deficit hawk, um, you know, right, right and left uh, to some extent. Um, and it always seemed idiotic uh, to me and austerity seemed even more sort of idiotic following the uh, 2008 um, financial crisis. And yet, like, the major sort of ideas uh, about economics never really, like, withered away. You didn't suddenly get this, um, uh, you know, challenge to a lot of the, I think, sort of orthodox uh, perspectives that was sort of, at the very least, you know, sort of off the table. Um, and so, you know, modern monetary theories we'll sort of get into is this, um, you know, an attempt to say, well, like, actually, the you know, parameters, uh, sort of intellectual parameters that set up austerity as this thing that you have to do are um, uh, false. And uh, there is a way of sort of like getting out of that, uh, getting out of that trap. But at the same time, there has been sort of a lot of criticism, um, not just on the right uh, of MMT, but on the left uh, as well. And there's sort of two, um, recent major sort of critical essays um, on the left uh, criticizing MMT, one in Jacobin and one in the sort of British equivalent of Jacobin called Tribune, uh, both of which sort of bash MMT as sort of uh, either some sort of, uh, you know, plot of rich people uh, to sort of delude uh, delude leftists uh, or just not that uh, helpful for, you know, engaging in, in something like class struggle. And so, you know, it's, it's sort of interesting. It's, it's neither fish nor fowl in certain ways. And so I'll sort of get into what those um, those debates are. I uh, think the neither fish nor fowl is really sort of my take. But so the first thing would be, we have not read the textbook that sold out. Which was the textbook again? The textbook is the... It's called, I think, simply macroeconomics. Okay. Because uh, there's, a, there's a different MMT primer that was published um, that is available on Amazon. I forget who. I'm just checking yeah, who wrote so it right I, now. There's an MMT yeah. that was, that's by uh, Randall Ray, or L. Randall yeah, Ray. Yeah, Ran Randall Ray is the sort of, he, that's probably the best primer for MMT. I yeah. read a few other primers, um, Soft Currency Economics 1 and 2, uh, by a somewhat more dubious character, but a person who is absolutely pivotal to um, uh, making MMT happen. Um, at the present moment, uh, a guy named Warren Mosler, uh, who's an economist and a venture capitalist and uh, many other he's, things. He's the guy who lives on the island. Yeah, right? Yeah, he, he the, lives in the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, for tax purposes. For tax and, purposes. Uh, and, funds, and funds interesting economic uh, yeah, theory. Yeah, I mean, the, the, we're going to sort of get into the, I guess, the quasi-conspiracy theory, but if you read anything with the name sort of modern monetary theory attached there's a pretty good chance that that research would not have happened without funding from a person named Warren Mosler, who, um, if you see him at any of these sort of events, is he looks like he walked out of a Steely Dan um, album. Like he just, he's very relaxed. He's very, um, he sort of has a ruddy uh, complexion. He looks like he's been, he, that he's just come back from the beach and that he's just had a Mai Tai. And he's he just, just had like a big black cow, and he got out of there. Exactly. Um, exactly. Well, so the have, your, have your big black cow and get out of austerity land. <laughs> the, what is it? But so the point would be, we have not read that that macroeconomics textbook. And fit. instead, I have been chewing around the edges. I have been reading the internet and whatever. So a bunch of MMT really is digestible um, through a bunch of um, available primers, um, partially through Moser's website. Um, then you can just sort of like you can follow us and if you search modern monetary theory and Jacobin inevitably like the Google results will also pull up its its responses so it's like a pretty accessible debate um, for the both of us who are I think it's fair to say sort of dabblers in econ um, though you know like all philosopher big pink uh, picture people I kind of end up gravitating more towards macro um, but the uh, so the first is purely amateur uh, a amateurism on my part. 
Um, but the the other thing was, it's like I, I'm glad that you at least sort of encountered austerity ideology in your in your actual formal education because I didn't take an econ class at all. Oh, bless uh, you. I know. Well, you were it's one I, it's true. I just sort of saw it filled with um, sociopaths and, and future lawyers and was like, no, 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 don't need it. Um, subsequently, like, then graduated in 2007 um, and has have muddled my way through without econ for, for, <laughs> for the rest of my career. But the, the, the point would be, it's like it's, I never encountered it um, all throughout, like, if you have any sort of a, if you're at all sort of educated in, in policymaking or or law or things like that. At some point, you run up against the idea of a budget or taxing, but you don't really know what it attaches to, who these economists are when they make projections on the basis of taxes or anything else. At some point, you just kind of have the basic rubrics of left and right with regard to taxation, and um, you have the basic uh, metaphors of tax tax puts money in the budget, bonds put money in the budget and then those are sold and then you have a sense of deficit or not like if you're spending more than what was brought in through revenue or through bond sale um right and it's i mean it's it's hard you know part part of the thing is that many of the issues that that we're we're talking about we're, we're not really even aware of all of the ways in which the political economy has changed to force us to ask questions about what we can do as a society um uh, in a particular way. So, you know, the, the main um, thing that, you know, when you're proposing major social legislation or something like the Green New Deal or Medicare for All, you know, the main question is sort of like, you know, how much is it going to cost? And, you know, it's there, there's a sort of history of asking that question um, that is very particular to like the last 30 years. Um, and, and that history is this, right? In the early part of the post-war period, spending money for governments was not a huge problem, especially for the United States government. It wasn't a big deal. Why? Because you had like 4% GDP growth in a, in a single year. Um, you had uh, taxes that were not indexed to inflation, so you never had to tax people. Uh, as inflation happened and as wages went up, people just drifted into higher tax brackets. You never had to tax them. You had social programs that were... Uh, where the, the bill came due uh, a great deal later, like Social Security, um, the and, and you had, in a sense, uh, uh, labor unions that were much more powerful um, than they are today, so you actually had like a political backing for doing big uh, things. That's the context in which Medicare passed, right? You know, flash forward to today, Medicare for All or Green New Deal, um, taxes are indexed to inflation. Um, we've had huge cuts to the top marginal tax rate, um, unions are weak, uh, the right is especially well organized, and you have all of these institutions uh, sort of put into place in the budgetary process to like continuously remind you that we have a deficit and we have a national debt. And we have these national debt clocks that people run, and it's just something that's like in the water. Um, and this is the sort of orthodoxy that we've you know, grown up in, um, and you know, and so the 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 common refrain, right, is that government like can't live beyond its means, and the first sort of uh, appetizer for MMT, although it's not necessary um, for MMT, it's it's you you don't have to believe the rest of the theology of MMT to buy this, but government is not a household economy; uh, it cannot. Um, uh, spend beyond its means because it creates its means, it has an army, um, and it uh, can print money. Um, and so it literally creates the means um, that, it, uh, that it uses to, uh, to spend. You don't have to... I was going to say, um, another way of putting it is the Federal Reserve, which is the bank that pays out everything isn't like a normal bank you know it's like if you go to like i'm just trying to think if there's the online uh i think khan academy has like an econ 101 and one of the first lectures they give is sort of like well where does money come from and they have a story in there which is like a bank and people deposit a bunch of money and at some point people are like the banker is able to loan it out 
and then subsequently, in like leverage the funds he has, he ends up creating money inadvertently by virtue of loan and credit, and just sort of that bank has to accumulate and has to hold in reserve, and sort of it can't create money; it creates credit. Um, but the Federal Reserve is not a normal bank. The Federal Reserve literally issues the debt of the state. Um, one of the one of the, it's like it's. It, I first encountered this idea really reading uh, Graeber's Five Bajillion Year History of Debt, um, when it just sort of took like an interesting way of rephrasing it, which was um, at some point he says that, you know, the United States government is really an occupying army of the United States. It's like you're, you're in the empire. Yeah, exactly. Like if you think of the United States as uh, an army occupying your land, um, it's, you know, it issues you IOUs that are dollar bills and says, um, in exchange for, like, we've taken some shit from you, namely, like, your land and uh, some resources, uh, and uh, too bad, but here's here's the IOU for that. Um, and you can uh, eventually, you can either come back to us with that and, like, get some of that material back, or at some point you can pay us for the pleasure of uh, making sure that your land exists in peace um, because of our sovereign power. Um, and you can do that in taxes. Um, and that it's an interesting, like, because the whole point is the government, when you think of the dollar bill as government issued debt, as like something that is owed to it, um, that it sort of gave you a chit in exchange for planes, that it gave you in exchange for like rule of law, um, it it, and then at some point you just begin to exchange these various chits of government debt with other people because it just happens to be useful, um, and then it becomes the the form of trust and the institution of money that we understand it to be. Um, but the whole point is the government issues that because of its immense, it has the army, it has its immense power. It has your trust because like you're now part of it. Like if you want to like live in the world and do stuff, you need to rely on it. And it relies on you for taxes, for, you know, serving in its armies, for being a, a productive member of uh, the, the country um, and all the, and like, so it's just a vast sort of web of um, trust and institutions. And the point would be, it's like the, the sovereign, the currency and the Federal Reserve is not a normal bank. Um, right. So, so this is like, again, the, and none of this, none of what we've just said is, is specific to MMT. People who do not believe in the rudiments of modern monetary theory uh, know that piece of it to be true. Um, they know, in a sense, that um, that balancing the budget is not, you know, a necessary um, thing to do. And in fact, balanced budgets are, you know, often create um, economic problems of their own that typically precede recessions. Um, and, you know, so this is just a, there's a, a kind of position in left economics, which is to say, don't worry about the deficit very much, right? Uh, don't worry about uh, the debt um, that is not MMT. The key thing that is distinctive about MMT, and I think that the real reason why people are talking about it, is that MMT posits that government does not need to tax and borrow in order to spend money. Right? That is the key proposition that makes MMT, I think, alluring for fiscal expansionists um, that is the idea that we can, you know, fund the Green New Deal without necessarily, you know, raising taxes on a lot of people in a way that is politically painful. In the past, we didn't have to do that or wouldn't have had to do that at all because taxes just went up with inflation um, and, and, and wage growth, but now they're indexed, right? So there wouldn't have been a political problem before. Now it's a political problem. So how do you get around that? Um, you don't, you could just print money. Uh, in order to uh, to spend, so there's a there's a claim which is um, uh, government spending does not come from taxation and borrowing, and that's a claim that I think is requires you to buy something a little bit more than the idea that deficits and debt don't matter as much as you might have thought uh, they did when you were, you know, preached to uh, by, you know, you know, an angry Dutch uncle. Uh, or you know a uh, you know, college Republicans or something like that. Um, so so let's this this idea that um, government doesn't 
uh, have to tax and borrow in order to spend. Actually, I think that idea comes on a rheostat because there are different ways of holding how strongly. Because you say when you say it, it sounds as though it's like like, that. Just sounds very strong. There's like a descriptive claim, and then there's the well, what can we do? So you can definitely you can definitely spend without uh, giving too much of a shit about the deficit, Um, or you can really spend. And I think everyone is sort of when you hear that you do not have to care about taxing. Um, people lose their mind. Yeah. Um, and I think, like, occasionally in the MMT articles, you hear, like, a more measured version of the you do not need to um, tax in order to spend. Um, because, like, what is the empirical basis for MMT? Like, in most of, like, the foundational text, it's literally none of you economists are paying any attention to um, Federal Reserve accounting, which is yeah. to say it's like, does anyone really know what happens when you pay a tax? Right. Like, and this is something that I have to say, studying uh, social policy and, and bureaucracy, you would have thought that I, I would know how Federal Reserve accounting works in some way or what happens at the very least um, when government takes in uh, revenue from taxation. But I didn't. Um, this is actually like, something that it's, it's instructive to look at how reserve accounting works. It's like a weird metaphysical question because like they literally use the phrase like when you pay taxes, you destroy money in the reserve because you give the, the chit back to the government and then it disappears. It literally like it's odd for you to hear that kind of language because you would think that, no, no, I give you the chit and then you put it in a safe and then you pay it back out again. But no, like reserve accounting literally is the destruction of money yeah, in important ways. It like points to how bizarre like certain like concepts from the law like property are. Because literally if you ever look in the tax code or anywhere else, no one ever defines property. It's like no one ever defines money. It's a vast, it's a weird thing at the heart of a lot of paradoxical problems, um, which is, you know, it's like reserve. And so the, what MMT does at its like descriptive, most interesting, and I think unimpeachable level is it describe it just it describes reserve accounting it describes a way of descri- like understanding money in a way that i think that even conservative economists would find unobjectionable right so like one of the key things about the uh, monetary policy the the main focus of monetary policy is controlling the interest rate um and so there's this question right how do interest rates um, fluctuate? Like, what causes them to fluctuate? And one thing that MMT sort of research shows is that um, there's something called the reserve effect, which is that every time government spends money uh, on the ledgers of private banks, it creates a, a surplus. When government taxes, it creates on the ledgers of private banks a deficit. And uh, the balance of deficits and surpluses um, in the uh, 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 among banks are not always uh, even banks have sort of capital uh, requirements and so um, they like to avoid um, you know, large uh, deficits uh, and, and surpluses of uh, reserves and so there's this uh, federal funds market uh, where this um, uh, surpluses are, are traded and the, the, the point here is uh, because all of that activity, right, taking in money, spending money, happens at the federal treasury, um, the federal treasury has a huge incentive to smooth out its operations. Um, as a result, it ends up coordinating its activity with the Federal Reserve in a way that suggests that there is a relationship between um, the Federal Reserve's uh, policy with respect to money and uh, the way that fiscal policy operates that's, that's tighter and a uh, different sort of uh, relationship than you might uh, expect. Um, that uh, government does not, in fact, spend only when it accumulates um, the revenue necessary to do that spending. Um, it's smoothing out its operations in coordination with, um, uh, with monetary policy. And there's, there's sort of antecedents to this, right? If you look at like American colonial uh, money, um, the legislation that created money in the American colonies was also uh, the legislation that uh, created um, the, the first taxes. And the idea is that um, government 
uh, creates uh, money, um, uh, puts it out into the economy, and then it use, uh, uses taxes to sort of collect uh, back that money and to control um, the money supply. Um, and that's sort of at the core of, of MMT is this idea that money doesn't, the money in a sense, in, in a very important way, um, is created by, is a, is a creature of um, the state. Right, um, which is, and this is sort of relates to a much older uh, sort of theory of money called chartalism, um, uh, which is a I think a late nineteenth century um, sort of idea that um, uh, chartalism. The word chart I think is comes from the Latin cart, which is like ticket um, uh, or token, and the idea is that that's really what money is. It's these these tokens. Um, uh, created by uh, the government as a way of sort of really as a, as a project of like sovereignty. Um, uh, and so whether or not that's true sort of philosophically, it's certainly the case that currencies um, uh, are not metallic, right? The, uh, we, we live in a world of fiat currency, not, not metallic-backed uh, currency. Um, and so this is sort of one, uh, there's a sort of set of empirical implications related to MMT that MMT uh, people sort of like to trot out and test um, to sort of suggest that really what government is doing when it's uh, spending money is um, that is, it, it, it does so by creating money first and then taxing it in order to manage, um, uh, to manage the money supply. There's the theory, there's the modern monetary theory um, it, which I think is, uh, I think it's sort of like the, uh, like there's a bunch of ways of viewing. So like the, the, the austerity story, the austerity story of money, which is that government only takes it in through taxes or issues debt through bonds, um, and can only spend what it takes in, isn't exactly wrong, um, because that myth has important social functions. Um, it does prevent the government from sort of spending too much from flooding the uh, market with its currency just by creating it out of nowhere and subsequently causing a lot of problems like the so like there are the the more refined version of the argument is the it's not that government doesn't have to worry uh, about deficits or debt and, and it's not that it doesn't have to worry about inflation but the point is that you uh, that governments already um, create money uh, in order to spend, uh, and that you could ostensibly get away with creating a lot more of it, but you would still have to find a way of managing inflation by ensuring that the economy has enough absorptive capacity to handle uh, all of that money. Because if it doesn't, you end up with situations like Venezuela, exactly, uh, where people are, you know, carting around money in, in like wheelbarrows to buy a cup of coffee. Yeah, because if they end up hoarding it. The inflation right. will will end up going out. So you, so you need so they, you need to have I mean it's, things to spend it you on. You need to have things to spend it on. There needs to be a sufficient level of productivity in the economy to absorb all of that money, so that you don't have massive inflation. And that and that really whether or not you can uh, develop a set of policy instruments that would allow you to do this at a level um, that you know would be necessary given what you want to spend. I think that's that's one of the key questions, and this is sort of one of the the broader things that you don't see resolved in any of these debates. Is you know is MMT you know a full scale program that you uh, sort of adopt wholesale, uh, or is it a set of tools that you sort of you you take on little by little and you know use where necessary um, um, and manage where necessary. Uh, or not, I think it's that's sort of not resolved um, in this set of debates. So the, your your more refined version of the position, I think, is though is the is the basic one, or which is the most important thing takeaway, which is now the, in examining this quality of or the nature of money and monetary policy, um, it's possible to at very least no longer be in the thrall of an austerity ideology. Um, that you need to tax, but by the same token, you don't need to be as worried about not or about as about as deficits um, as 
you know, is used to bludgeon the left um, in political discussion. So, yeah, like, well, I mean, the, so the, the, well, the point was like, because the why, why now? So the whole point is like, my one of my questions was like, modern monetary theory has been around for how long? Well, been around I'm, for a few well, a decade. It, if it not depends more. on how you look at it, because the sort of the roots of modern monetary theory you can trace back to um, the early twentieth century. Uh, it's and you can trace it back to functional finance and like Abba Lerner um, in the middle of the 20th century. I would trace it back to like 1998. What, if um, chief, what was the chief paper you the gave? The chief paper is um, uh, Stephanie Kelton's 1998 paper, um, which uh, is called can, bonds, uh, can Taxes and Bonds Finance Government Spending? Yes. Question mark. Um, that so was published published in 1998 um, okay. by Stephanie Kelton, who is, I would say, probably the best spoken and most lucid proponent of uh, of MMT. That was the super way that helpful. she explains it makes a lot of sense. Um, and you can you can criticize it, but I think it's it's worth having that sort of nuanced empirical uh, take. And and she's sort of got the best one. It was it was good. It also reminds you how economists think, which is in like cascades of um, inference. Um, yes. There are whole paragraphs which are just well. Then you increase the money supply, and then this thing happens, and then this thing happens, and this thing happens, and uh, by the end of it, like <laughs> it's everything has gone to shit. And you're like, that's it's striking how economists do that. Um, at some point, your eyes glaze over. Uh, but like that, the whole point is that's from '98. Like modern modern monetary theory has been with us. Uh, like why now? Um, why why sort of get trot this out now? Um, and it seems like the gist, it, like my, you know, off the cuff analysis would be. There's a Trump tax cut. The right is doing deficit spending. Um, we've looked at Obama, who was a slave to austerity ideology and refused to um, make a strong, like essentially take a strong bargaining position to spend money, um, despite the fact that he was, or at least when he had power, he had two years of power, why not take a strong position? Um, why stay, why insist that, for instance, um, yeah, you know, Obamacare had to pay for itself yeah, and all this other shit? Yeah, he insisted that Obamacare at least pretend, and, and, and the fact about it is, like, was the ACA, like, revenue neutral? Not really. Not really. There, there was a lot of revenue, like, trickery uh, in that, so it's like... It was past the reconciliation. Right. But the idea, it's like the idea was you had to like bow to the God of us, literally bow to the God of austerity. And it doesn't matter sort of what you do after church, uh, you know, or <laughs> like whether or not you've eaten an hour before communion or whatever. You can have um, a champagne lunch. Right. Um, but it's like you have to like bow to the God anyway. Um, well, the gist is now it was like the experience has been profound for a particular generation of of lefty inclined talking heads and uh, people writing books and thinkers, it's like the the creation, like just all of a sudden, the sheer fact that we listened to a guy who was enslaved to the austerity ideology and now we know the right is bankrupt and does not care and that it is a sham. It's like, well, now we're just going to spend. And what is the what are the tools available to help us spend, um, especially on the things that actually matter that might promote justice well-being um the the uh, the preservation of the planet etc and like that's so that's fine we were reaching for a tool and we found it did they find the right tool like they found something that says kind of what they want well, uh it is or has become politically painful to raise taxes to a sufficient degree Raising taxes on the top 1% is great, probably wouldn't be especially politically painful, except in the sense of like donors, Um, but it wouldn't be painful like at the ballot box necessarily. Um, You probably need to spend a lot more than that. You probably need to tax more than just the top uh, earners. You need to do more than just raise the top marginal rate to like 90%. you probably need to do a great deal more um, than that in order to to sort of have adequate financing for these things, and that's going to be politically painful, right? So the question is sort of like, how do you lessen those blows? Or, right, that would be one way of doing it. How do you lessen those blows so that it's it's easier to gather revenue? Or 
how do you rejigger the instruments of fiscal policy such that we're giving less of a shit about deficits, right? And it could be that you just like, we score climate legislation differently because in the long run, it's actually cost saving or we find some way of commensurating the value of life in a different way. I don't know. Um, but if you, if you think it's politically painful to tax and you're not willing to like tinker with these instruments in another way, modern monetary theory says print money. Like that's, that's the, the way, so it's, it's not just a problem of like, where do you come up with a cough up the money for spending is how do you get around the politically painful things? Um, and, and that sort of modern monetary theory is this sort of like one weird trick approach, uh, to doing that, which is to say, you've been thinking about monetary policy and fiscal policy all wrong. Duck rabbit kind of thing. <laughs> That's that. That's all. That I'm glad you brought up Duck Rabbit. That's sort of what I'm, how I end up thinking about it is the, um, is modern monetary theory doesn't necessarily present you with. It's not. It's not inherently leftist, like the, like it's not inherently a progressive way of understanding it. It's just sort of it reminds you of certain essential, macroeconomic, facts. It, it sort of like regrounds you such that maybe you've never thought about it before um and uh at least that's what i credit it with which is like i'm i'm sort of regrounded in you know you're going to need to tax you're going to need to tax you know issue bonds and spend um you know deficit spend to do all the things you need to do and it's just you're going to you're going to uh you know you are going to uh do all three in moderation with different you're going to like ratchet it certain parts in different ways um but the right strategy of basically preventing you from deficit spending and locking taxes at a particular place um is is just that it's repugnant it sort of reminds you where the levers are um and that you have a bunch in your hands um right and that's and and so you know and i think that that's one of the good things about sort of unorthodox ideas. So like one of the big criticisms of, and I'm not, I'm not saying it's a good criticism, it just ends up being a criticism is uh, of MMT folks is that they're not really clear about their terms. This is like a classic, almost reminded me of like a classic Girard criticism. Like, well, what do you mean by that? Right? They're, they're not clear about their terms. <laughs> um, they're, they're, they're shifty when they're in, you know, arguing with other people. Um, they seem to say things that are that are internally contradictory, um, and I, you know I th I think that I don't really care. Um, I, I've determined <laughs> that I don't really care about any of that because I think that's one of the functions of anti-orthodoxy is not necessarily to present a completely coherent, um, uh, unambiguous set of of facts because orthodoxy doesn't have that. Orthodoxy doesn't make any sense, right? Orthodoxy creates the homology between the household economy and, and the political economy, which is garbage. I think the point of anti-orthodox ideas like MMT is to be fringe and to, you know, as ambiguously or not, uh, begin to expose aspects of orthodoxy that are internally contradictory. Well, it's, um, orthodoxy is an attitudinal orthodoxy. It's like as as I spent more time with the, the literature, it's like MMT people will apply it to, you know, a multitude of empirical cases to see if it kind of is. Like if you actually look at the primers, there's like, was it? There's a there's like seventeen, eighteen articles. There's like, you know, the sovereign budgets, interest rates, reserves versus bond sales, debt limits how do foreigners hold government bonds, solvency crises, you know, it's like they'll use it and they'll apply it to all a bunch of different data sets. And it's the same thing that rightward economists do too, but rightward economists have been doing it attitudinally on behalf of a bunch of sort of positions. Like the rightward economists um, sort of biases or attitudinal defaults are towards conglomeration, um, towards corporation, like corporate power um, and, you know, uh, anti tax or anti-state um like they'll just generate on the basis of like fairly you know um 
neutral or you know ambivalent data, they'll manufacture a series of of sort of you know things that reaffirm their biases towards um, you know the need for you know all these corporations to buy one another and to just completely depress wages and, and be assholes. Um, the the point would be it's like and MMT now provides at very least like another uh, just a different frame, a different opportunity, um, and. Like, at very least, it's unorthodox, and it's unorthodox on behalf of policy people for people thinking outside of it. Um, when I asked, when I was sort of, I, we were exchanging notes, I was saying that, like, this isn't necessarily going to un dethrone the cadre of repugnant people with PhDs who are going to say rightward things and just call themselves economists. Because that that little bunch of like that that cadre those bunch of courtiers like they have it's locked in that money is there and like the right's really good at buying a bunch of um, mewling toads to sort of to speak their their language for them yeah um, and be credentialed but also i mean I, i'll give you an example i mean it, th this is still i think it, it's having a moment it's more main mmt is more mainstream than it's ever been um but it's i think it's important to note like it's still pretty marginal i think in the world of economics if you go to a really nice um academic -y bookstore with a lot of economics books you will not see you'll maybe see one mmt book but but probably not um i was i just did i did this for 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 um for a laugh last night and i could not find a single um and i couldn't even find a book on um sort of like post-keynesian Economic. It was like it Piketty was, like, was really, Piketty on the sale table. But no, Piketty was there, you know, and, <laughs> and the after Piketty book was there, that edited volume. But um, but you know, MMT was so it's like worth like just you know tone of um, uh, sort of just note of caution, right? It's it's uh, 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 still somewhat marginal, but it's I think for the left, especially because like Ocasio Cortez, you know, has embraced. Um, MMT to some extent. Um, uh, Kelton was uh, an economic advisor for uh, for Bernie. Um, you know, it, it's you know, it's gaining it's it's gaining traction, and the left, uh, at least some parts of the left, certainly Jacobin and you know in the UK Tribune, they've responded really negatively um, to um, to MMT, and the critiques goes something like this. I'm trying to think about what the best one is. Um, I feel like the best critique is something like um, this idea of uh, taxing uh, is not necessary except as a way of controlling inflation uh, both you know obscures essentially a, the political struggle involved in making a government for uh, you know for the masses um, that like at some point you do like progressive taxation is necessary um, and what MMT does is it just turns taxation from a mechanism of like maintaining the social contract into a tool of economic management which then has to fluctuate not with what we want to do um, as a society, but with prices. Um, and that you have to continuously adjust taxes um, at, you know, uh, with respect to prices so that you're controlling inflation. Um, and the sort of expectation is a legislature couldn't do that, right? a democratic body couldn't do that. You're gonna give the taxing power effectively to you know, um, technocrats. Um, and so there's a sort of democratic impulse, and there's also a question of like, what are taxes for? Are they for the social contract, or are they for um, uh, 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 just a tool of, of sort of like economic management? Inflation management. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. There are worse criticisms. Like the worst criticism, I think, is like Doug Hen in Doug Henwood's piece, which is like, I don't. His criticism ultimately boils down to like, I don't like these people. Yeah, his that Jacobin article was not helpful, though the MMT people's reply was real snitty. But his his essentially just was like to to conjure the the ghost of Weimar 
Um, it was a cheap. It's cheap. Like you choose. It's the real worst cheap. Cases. There's a bunch of cheap shots. Like one conjure the ghost of Weimar and be like, oh, okay. You know, it's like inflation is real. Like we get it. Like the point is, if you read anything remotely sophisticated about MMT, you realize that no one is saying just print friggin' money. It's saying deficits aren't uh, like as significant or destructive as you as people have a tendency to think like give yourself the power to spend um to deficit spend is essentially like but, see, of the, but that's not but see that alone is an mmt right that's not um you could say that and actually be a Keynes. You, you plenty of keynesians would say that right mm -hmm. um the the thing that's different um I think about MMT is to say that like actually what you're doing when you when you tax is not what you think you're doing. Um, there's something else in a sense going on there, and and the way that you think about money is not, you know, actually how how money works to some extent. Um, but the, you know, I, I think this, yeah, I, I you know. Um, well, there's the ghost of Weimar, and then he complains about how sort of the analysis is contained. Is essentially MMT is largely the study of the U.S. Federal Reserve. It's not the study of reserve currencies in general, um, or of uh, reserve banks, or national reserve banks in general. Um, it's sort of the study of one particularly super dominant um, currency, to which I say. Who cares? <laughs> yeah, who cares? I like, mean, if it's like if you're not trying to create a covering law. You're trying to create a, a way of managing this particular. Um, uh, yeah. Though, judging by like the MMT people's reply, it was a. Oh, they want it to be a covering law, but I mean, it's. I'm, I'm thinking about this like a. How do we get around this very basic political problem? Well, it's like it, 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 sort of my version of the leftist sort of critique was you're not going straight at the, you're not going sufficiently straight at the heart of agglomerated power and capital enough. Like, like oh, okay, like, <laughs> like, so it's like the of course not because it's a theory. It's like a, it's not a theory of class struggle. It's a monetary. It's a theory of describing monetary policy. Like, what do you? What did you want? Like the a, right. like a. I, I don't understand why this was in fact something that had to be addressed as like it isn't helping no it's 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 something else in your it's another arrow in your quiver of course it's helping it's not that something is wrong with it or something that actually works counter to like a long prolonged struggle that's end up going to end up happening um henwood's was just so ass backwards i don't know <laughs> yeah i mean you know the other thing is this is like i you know if you let, let, let's just accept that um, that MMT has political problems that poses political problems for the left, or at the very least doesn't solve. It's it's not the you know okay, it's not the 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 magical tool it might seem to be at first blush, uh, or even that like it. There are dark sides of it. There are, you know, if you don't manage inflation properly, you create Weimar-like crises. Or if you, that, that it basically, it's like um, uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice broom, right? That it's like, okay, it's a really powerful thing, but you could really, I think that's like the most generous version of that critique. Yeah. Right? It's a potentially very powerful thing, but it's very, very easy to misuse. Um, I'll just leave that as the critique. Okay, so then what you're saying is you got to leave the sorcerer's broom on the shelf. Don't use that tool. Too powerful. Potentially very dangerous. You still have to come back to the political problem of coughing up the money, right? If you want what Henwood calls like sound finance socialism, you have to have an answer for how the fuck you do that. And I don't really think that, at least in that article, he doesn't present one. And that's a, it's a political project of building a mass movement for um, not just, you know, more progressive taxation, but just taxation, period. Taxes have to go up for a lot of people uh, and just massive renegotiations of the terms of the social contract. And the thing is, we're going to have to do that anyway, uh, I think, regardless. Um, but, you know, the answer to like 
MMT, uh, you know, techno optimism is, you know, a more full-throated explanation of how you actually solve these problems. And I think in that piece, it sort of redounds to like, well, we have to do leftism well, like we have to do like class struggle well, but you know, you got to flesh that out. I mean, because that's a much harder, it's a much harder, I think, necessary thing to do. But, you know, the way that you try, if, if, the, if the point is to, to get people away from thinking about the easy fixes uh, or the, the one weird tricks, you have to, you know, I don't know, you have to build that part of the argument out a little bit more, I think. Well, it just sounds like a romantic, you know, democratic your local it just it, it just has that romance quality to it it's like it's not like i know we hate technocrats now um but you know just keep it in your back pocket i swear like it's fine <laughs> yeah i mean i think that i i don't see the point I, I i can see the point of saying like this isn't enough right or that like don't you know don't get too comfortable with this is like the the solution to climate change or whatever because managing the reserve bank is one tenth of your political problem exactly right so it's like i don't i'm i'm curious as to why the strategy on the left has been to just go in for the jugular um un unless it's sort of like this is eating the lunch of other left economists in some way who are prominently positioned i'm, I'm not sure i don't even know who those people are i can't even identify i couldn't even identify if you told me what a really good left movement in economics was other than this oh yeah i can't think of anything though you know, i don't read the literature and i was going to say if you were trying to go for the jugular it's like it seemed like Henwood was reaching for a jugular, then fell down a flight of stairs. Like I don't know what exactly he was trying to do. There's, a, there's, a, you know, I think the other thing is there's a weird pattern in like American economics, which is, you know, economics doesn't seem to evolve as a discipline, or as, you know, when we think about economics, what I'm really thinking about is like courtly economics, mm -hmm. right? The economics of the state, and I think where that is concerned, like I don't think that evolves like gradually in these sort of you know, uh, level-headed debates in the literature, it seems to evolve abruptly through charismatic cult-like leaders um, who spread their seed, you know, at <laughs> academic institutions and, and really do create cults of personality. Like, uh, you know, you look at the covers of, like, Time magazine in the 60s and you had, like, you know, Keynes on the cover of Time in like the late 60s and then you know a year later you had Friedman on the cover and it's just like these these cults of personality are, are a big way that economics evolves and I think that you know MMT is no different than that in fact it's uh, it the 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 wackiness the loopiness that you sometimes you know see the, the attempt to like you know uh, persuade people with um, stories and, and anecdotes and and uh, the sort of shiftiness of some of his positions, this seems actually a lot like insurgent movements in economics, like all, you know, from Keynes on, right? That's, I, I don't I'm really see. I'm certain, look at the, the opening salvos in supply side are equally slippery. I just don't have them immediately on hand. Right. And I'm certain that people in the know realized how full of shit Friedman was when he started peddling his, his stuff. But by the same token, he did—he got a following. Fresh water became like a thing, you know. So it's just got. Uh, I'm just curious what the the fun idiomatic, idiosyncratic aspect of this this new this oncoming left econ messiah will be. Well, then there's a broader question of like, and I, I think this is something that we've sort of traced out in you know, the last maybe few episodes, like maybe the really important ideas and uh, sources of energy, they just don't necessarily, like if you're looking for a revolution, do not look to the economics departments. I think that's that seems a reasonable thing to suggest. If you need tools, you know, instrumentation, then look uh, to the economists. But don't, I mean, I, I think the one place where I do, you know, the, the critique doesn't maybe say this particularly well, but it's, it is the case. It's like, you, this is not a substitute for anything. 
mm-hmm. right? Um, it is a set of tools, but don't go expecting a revolution in an economics department. Come on now. Yeah. That's absurd. Agreed. So it's like, yeah, my, our, our only reply to the left were really, it's like, stop criticizing them for something that they couldn't be to begin with. Right. And I mean, it's a little bit of a straw man to some extent, um, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I think that that's, that's a, you know, you're, these projects go on into, you know, political projects and, and sort of technical projects go on in tandem. And sometimes they're related and sometimes you see sort of porosity between sort of elite intellectuals and, and, and social movements and that's necessary, but, but it's not, you know, don't don't like commit the the sin of like reduction um, when when talking about them. And Henwood really does that a lot. Like I'll be content if in the end the main effect the MMT has is not changing the way that we do monetary policy or think about what money is or taxes are, but simply just is a is just a a slap in the face every time somebody says. Um, how are you going to pay for it? Um, that's un- you know that's not um, uh, that's not uh, you know sound. That's not um, uh, you know fiscally responsible. I mean, it's just those arguments about you know fiscal um, policy. It, it's it's such a crutch um, in debate, and it's it's such a it's something that you I think see have seen. I think one of the reasons, like the le- the center left anyway, moved into austerity world is not just because of, you know, Democrats c- courting, you know, high finance. Uh, I also think it's because like, deficit arguments are like easy and fun. They're you know? so easy. Like you know, because this this became you can't easy. spend beyond your means, and neither should the government. Oh. Is such an easy, easy argument. And for you know, for the anti-war left, it became a very easy way of saying like, well, we don't have the money for a war, right? Uh, or for the, um, you know, when tax cuts, government tax cuts would be passed in Reagan administration or Bush or uh, Trump. It's like, well, you know, that was the sort of easy, like, they're increasing the deficit. It was just like, it's the easiest way of talking about it, something, and it allows you to just completely avoid talking about the merits of the thing, right? Either oh, exactly. for the macro economy or for, I don't know, just what it means to like live in a civilized society right um and i will just be happy if those there's just like a moratorium on those kinds of arguments uh because they're just they're they're uh you know they're like delicious fried nothing <laughs> i never thought about how the uh the anti-war left availed itself of the same deficit argument, but it was, it is the same. And then when you think about what money is, which is actually just sort of the terms of your uh, submission to the sovereign, uh, (laughs) who's a guy with a giant gun, it's sort of, yeah, that's what money's for. Money's for, uh, money's for war, baby. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think a a much more like low hanging, I mean, to say nothing of MMT, MMT, this is, I, I, I don't think the prospects are especially rosy for this becoming the new gospel of the Federal Reserve Bank, okay? That's not going to happen any, like, anytime soon. Um, just in terms of where MMT... Because they probably are. already realized the nature of what, ta- like, what taxing actually does and what bond sales do to, like, liquidity and stuff like that. They're just... Their whole project is sort of just sort of maintain the, in- the interest rates. Right. And sort of, it's, like, keep... Just sort of prevent inflation, which is the... Which is like a, been a policy which, you know, it's like now I think what is it that people have been realizing or just because I just heard about it, which is the because they insisted on keeping the interest rates low, it subsequently led to the very slow, long recovery that basically immiserated um, everyone who got out of college so early um, because no one it's like we're only now approaching full employment again after like however many like was it 10 years and change 12, 13 years. Um, and now, and so it's like the, well, at least we have this long, stupid, slow recovery where no one could make any money and wages didn't really rise. And now maybe they're starting to edge up. Um, we have, we have this immiseration of a generation to thank for like an efflorescence on the left. 
Um, but uh, like the the Federal Reserve Bank already sort of probably operates under the same thinking that MMT people do. It could be. Well, I mean, I think the other thing is that the MMT project is really just trying to redescribe the world. Yes. Right? They're, they're introducing new categories and they're trying to say, well, this is actually what we've been doing in one way or another all along. Although that goes only so far because some of the things that I think are implicit in MMT would really require changes in the constraints that we put on the Federal Reserve. A lot of the constraints that we put on, I think MMT people acknowledge, are artificial, but they are constraints. You do have to remove them. So it can't fully, you cannot just say that MMT is a description. It's not purely a description. It is, it describes certain elements that, you know, are in central banking as an, an, an aspect of, of what fiat, how fiat currency works. But to actually, like, to see it at work in the world, you would need major policy changes right um but i don't think i don't think that if this is, this is a revolution it's with mmt it's not going to come through like storming you know storming the castle directly and then taking over um i think that that it, its influence will happen more gradually but God, if only they, because you got to take a lot of castles at the same time you know it, you know if there was some bit of concerted project to seize the federal reserve it doesn't change the fact that all the property is still in a few hands, that there's the nature of ownership, the the nature of corporate control and governance, at, at very least its current level, its current levels of uh, consolidation um, are really significant. <laughs> like, yeah. And I, and I think that um, the, like anything, I, I think that it's, MMT ideas will emerge kind of at moments where there are sort of really clear practical demands and there's a sort of setup um, that that creates like an, an emergent practical demand for that particular approach to, to fiscal policy. Like once, I would say that like once the Green New Deal and Medicare for All become much clearer uh, policy realities. Once we're, you know, talking about them in fine, and they are, you know, a real life possibility being passed. I think that, you know, some of these discussions are going to come, um, uh, come into into greater relief. Before that happens, though, I would say like one really great piece of low hanging fruit is just like destroying or otherwise mangling the institutions that force us to think about the deficit at all. Ooh, I like that. You could include that in your, your. Uh, I don't know where would you put that. You'd put that in the suite of processual reforms, you know, in your, uh, your your day one for a professor uh, for uh, President Buttigieg. I mean, I would just say you could even. I mean, oh, even go lower than that. Just eliminate paygo. Um, oh yeah. Yeah, eliminate paygo. Uh, you know, uh, just like, just. Why do they hold to it anyway? Aside from the fact that they did, like the only reason was the only reason why you know Pelosi holds to fa like Pago is because she instant like she helped institute it. Is it because it's hers? It's a way of managing political demands, I think. Oh, right. Um, the, you know, I think the when you don't have Pago, um, the and you're sort of running government, then you know, swarmeth the interest groups onto you demanding mm -hmm. uh, new stuff. And then you have to... Uh, tell them no. Tell, tell, tell them, them no. Yes. And that's very politically unpopular. This is an automatic way of... It's like the, you know, you must stand behind this line. Please wait here before you're called mm -hmm. uh, sort of situation. Um, and I think that that's... Uh, you know... If you're not actually willing to do the spending, you have to have some way of not making that into a thing that you can get blamed for if you want to stay in power. However, I think that this is like why, you know, why eliminating PAYGO if you're an insurgent Democrat in Congress, that's something that should be on your agenda because you got to knock those people out of power. Yeah. <laughs> if you want to do, if we want to save ourselves uh, from obvious destruction um so i feel lighter if i heart <laughs>
do it all, have a ball. Oh my goodness. Sign, sound finance socialism. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, let's see. I don't see any other. Nope. I don't see any other articles that I want to comment on. All I see is this uh, recipe for a Vietnamese pork omelet. Um, which sounds. <laughs> hey, that's that's the new MMT. Modern pork omelet theory. Modern pork. Om- <laughs> it's delicious. They used to serve it at uh at ca- like I think it was Cafe Pho on Forty uh, Fourth and Walnut. Oh, that's the best Vietnamese in Philly. I it love that. So good. I love that place. It's they have a- the the amazing like. Um, uh, the sort of like barbecue, uh, yeah. That like, like barbecue with the and broken uh, rice. Broken rice. Oh, it's incredible. Mm-hmm. Really good. We have Vietnamese tonight. Do it. It's like see if they offer the like the omelet because the omelet was one of the things it's they a had. Rare their thing. thing. It's actually rare. I don't know where the hell. Like I've been to many other Vietnamese places without that omelet, and it's always been so upsetting i'm like is that the only place that makes it because it's it, it looks weird it it's looks like a gray. big it's like a big crepe right it's like a great it, it, i there it is a crepe there's a it seems like on the internet says there's crepe like versions of it but there's also the one they made looked like it was made in like a kind of like a like a was it a tray so it like was a gray kind it's of sort of like loaf. a little wedge. Yeah, it was like a it, no, it was a gray loaf. You literally got like a square of yeah, it, but it was so yeah. fucking I guess delicious. I didn't, I didn't realize that was egg. That was egg. It was egg and I noodle just and never pork. knew it was really good. <laughs> so you're gonna make that? That's great. I was. Well, I'm thinking about it because all of a sudden, like, I'm all about fish sauce. Like, I'm so it's like a way of yeah adding flavor without adding too many calories. Sounds so. delicious. <laughs> all right. Positive gustation. I'm ready. I'm ready to eat the lunch of the rich and Vietnamese people. 